Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 27. We're again in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus' uh, sermon there to the people 2,000 years ago, recorded for us in the inerrant and infallible word of the living God. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 27, picking up where we left off last week as we continue our exposition uh, through this uh, part of the word of the living God. Let me read our Lord's words uh, to you, beginning in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I'm using as a subject this morning for these verses I just read in your hearing, identifying adulterers. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we pray you take these words and apply them to every heart and the sound of my voice. May we advance in holiness. May we look more like the one who gave this message initially. And we ask these things in his holy name. Amen. Amen. Identifying adulterers. At this point in his sermon, Jesus changes subjects. He moves from the topic of murder to the topic of adultery. What does not change, however, is that our Lord's teaching is that both evils are product of a sinful heart. The Savior teaches that the pollution of sin reaches to the deepest level of each person. In fact, the entire inner person is defiled by the inner moral filth of sin. That moral filth regarding sexual immorality is on display in our culture. Wouldn't you agree? For example, in the world of entertainment, sexual immorality is routinely glamorized. One TV producer said, quote, married or celibate characters aren't much fun. End of quote. Even articulating that sexual evil is fun is itself an expression of the fallen, impure heart of men. Others affirm an anti-biblical stance when they seek to legitimize an illegitimate adulterous relationship with the words, we love each other. The world hates biblical morality. It pokes fun at God's standard for human sexual expression and it even can celebrate it i'm reminded of the lyrics of a secular song that encapsulates the world's attitude you may remember these lyrics they go like this if loving you is wrong i do not want to be right i do right was that me and mrs jones come on y'all ain't been saved all your life <laughs> i think i got the lyrics right it ain't on my playlist. 
Amen. See, that, that, that shows you uh, what's wrong with the human heart, that men would vocalize their uh, desire to contradict the clear standards of God's truth rather than do what is right. Now, in verse 27, we see the deed. That's our first heading, the deed. Adultery, the act, and the disposition behind it are really both in these, this passage condemned by our Lord. But it needs to be understood that God did not give the seventh commandment, you know, you shall not commit adultery, to be a killjoy. He didn't give it to rain on our parade. In fact, as an act of God's graciousness and his love. He gave the commandment to protect marriage and the family. God is gracious and he is loving and he knows what's best for his creatures and how they are to function. Both marriage and family were given to mankind for man's flourishing, for man's joy, for man's blessing. And God, what he does, he regulates how those relationships are to be managed. And when there is a management in concert with, with God's standard, this thing is bestowed. Alternatively, adultery has a track record of bringing despair, bringing destruction to marriage and homes are broken up. And most important, divine judgment falls. David could testify to that. David testified to it, in fact, because when he had committed that great sin that we all know about, he prayed that God would restore the joy of your salvation. He lost the joy of the salvation that was his. Psalm 51, 12, he uttered that prayer to the Lord, imploring him to give me the joy that I've lost. And the seriousness of, of the deed of adultery is um, not understated by any means in the Bible. In fact, God's attitude toward it, it, it the seriousness of it, is such that God commanded that for those who commit that sin, they receive the death penalty. Deuteronomy twenty-two, twenty-two, Leviticus twenty, ten. God's very serious about moral purity. Very serious about the sin. His attitude did not change with the changing of eras from the Old Testament time to the New Testament time. Hebrews 13.4 Marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Do it all the time. I, I, I mention occasionally to my wife when I was a kid growing up, um, I remember the mother of a current uh, television star. If I mentioned the program and a name, you would know instantly who I'm talking about. But I remember that this current TV star's mother, when I was a kid, it was reported that she... And her lawyer with whom she was having an affair, as they call it, adultery, were killed in an auto accident. That stuck with my mind. Of all things, can you imagine growing up hearing something like that and it stays with you? 
And I've often wondered, in fact, I'm sure that what it was, God judged them. Be sure God judges sexual evil. And that needs to be really hammered home. That really needs to be understood by us in this culture that is hypersexualized. And when sin is glamorized and sex is always in our face, we have a, a soft porn culture, don't we? It's almost inescapable. So you need to have the divine perspective on it. You need to have biblical convictions about it. And it needs to sink deep down in our souls. So it may govern our minds and hearts. So the deed, adultery. Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And he's right. They had heard it because the, the, in synagogue they had heard it. The scribes and Pharisees said it, and the rabbis taught it, but they didn't go far enough. That's why we come to the next heading, the desire. There's more to adultery than the physical act. What Jesus is saying in verse 28, as heinous as that, evil is a compilation of two bodies of people who are not married to one another. It goes deeper than that. The Pharisees and the scribes and the rabbinical thinking taught simply that adultery was limited to the actual actual sexual intercourse alone. If a person didn't engage in the act, they were seen as guiltless regarding the seventh commandment. That was their thinking. That was their idea. Jesus strongly disagrees with it. You notice in verse 28, he says, but I say to you. First, let me remind you, he is not contradicting Old Testament law. He is not saying the Old Testament is wrong. Don't, don't, don't twist scripture in thinking when he says, but I say to you, he is saying that you shall not commit adultery. I'm saying something. No, no, no. He's not saying that at all. He speaks authoritatively here and, and, and emphatically. In fact, the, the nominative first person uh, noun, uh, pronoun, I, he is being emphatic here. He's contradicting the view of the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees with regard to the limitation on this sin. So here's his text. This is what he says. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus teaches that simply refraining from sexual intercourse with someone other than one's spouse does not mean one is not an adulterer. Did you get that? Amen. Because one has refrained from actual, literal, physical, uh, sexual intercourse with someone who is not their spouse does not mean they're not an adulterer. Doesn't mean they haven't violated the sixth or the seventh commandment. Here, Jesus identifies adulterers as those who have lusted after someone in their heart. He says quite clearly, they've already committed adultery in their heart. To probe further our Lord's words, the text can be translated this way. Looks to lust for her. Looks looks to lust for her. It's not a a glance, but a gawk. 
it's not an incidental view. It's not seeing someone and recognizing that someone is attractive. No, no, this is different. Looks to lust for her. What this is, they look with the intention, with the goal, the purpose to lust. Is on another person and uses him or her to fuel one's sexual imagination or fantasies. That's what Jesus is saying. People look and they're laser focused and they begin to imagine. They, they get to have all these fantasies in their mind about what they would like to do with that person. You want to have it in the mind. That's what Jesus is talking about. And he says, when that transpires, that lets you know that you've committed adultery already in your heart. Let me tell you what Jesus is doing here. To further expand our understanding. He's interpreting the seventh commandment in light of the tenth commandment. Which explicitly says this. Listen. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Exodus twenty seventeen. The tenth commandment. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. The tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Covet is something that goes on on the inside, right? In fact, the words covet and lust render the same Greek word in the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. So that word covet and that the word lust, epithemio, is the word in the, in the, in the Greek term. It means evil desire. Desiring something that doesn't belong to you. And that's what Jesus is talking about. So further, in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the tenth one, God proscribed lust behind the act. That's why he says don't covet. You have no business even desiring it. It is the heart of man which is the locus of his sin. It is where the evils that he does originates. In Matthew chapter 15, Verses uh, 19 and, well, just verse 19. Now, maybe verse 20 as well. Listen to the word of God. Listen to what Jesus says. For out of the heart comes, come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. They thought, oh, if I eat the wrong stuff, to eat the wrong way, I'm being defiled. Nonsense. No, the defilement comes out of the man. Or the woman. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, there's that word, adulteries, fornications, and the other sins. Man's problems come out of him. Every unconverted heart is filled with perverse attitudes, wrong priorities, and sinful desires that manifest themselves in wicked words and deeds. That's the reality. That's the divine diagnosis of human beings, unconverted human beings. Their thinking, their attitudes, all of it is wrong, it's perverse, it's deviant. 
I often think, you know, you can just look at people in the world, and I'm speaking just of humanity, and they can appear to be wonderful and all that. You know, the reality is you don't know what's in their heart. <laughs> you don't. We are not privy to the thinking, the perverseness in the human heart, the mind of sinful people, until it comes out in the acts that they do. People routinely wonder when they hear the bad news on the news, well, how could they do that? I'm thinking, ah, it's in their heart. They're corrupt. They're depraved. Depravity. There is a corruption of the human being on the inside. It's pervasive. Every faculty of the human being is corrupted by sin. If you don't get that basic truth, you will not comprehend why the world's in the mess it's in. You'll all be asking why. Don't ask why. Jesus tells us. It's clear. Men are sinful. Now let's go back, if you will, to verse 28. Our Lord's teaching. Here is that sin in the heart causes lustful looking. Did you get that? Lustful looking is but the expression of a heart that is already adulterous. <laughs> why it does what it does so this is a matter of, of inner evil now you, you notice something that Jesus does here he he talks to the men because he's saying everyone looks at a woman so assume men here and I can imagine the lady say that's how y'all are dogs <laughs> <laughs> But let me tell you, uh, this matter of inner evil is not reserved for the males of the species. It's the corruption of the human heart. Say, so how do you know that? I'm glad you asked. You know I'm going to go to the Bible. Potiphar's wife. She's an example. Remember Mrs. Potiphar? Joseph was there working in the house in the state and God was blessing Joseph was sold, sold by his brothers and he's down in Egypt God is going to work marvelously you know the story in Genesis in Genesis 39 verses 6 and 7 just write it down note it for later study notice something here the text that Joseph was quote handsome in form and appearance Mrs. Potiphar took notice. She looked at Joseph with desire and we know that she had lustful desires for Joseph because she uttered her desire with the words to him lie with me. She was driven by lust. She saw this handsome young man. Face was handsome as form of his body all of that. She was driven by lust and was willing to fulfill her lust in an adulterous relationship with him. 
You know what the Bible says about Joseph. He refused. He said, how can I do this great evil against God? I love that. He did not entertain it. He ran away. That's one woman. There's another woman. Proverbs 7 presents an adulterous wife. And if you read Proverbs 7, you'll see how she was a religious woman. <laughs> but she was not a faithful wife, and her husband's out of town. He had gone. He had some money. He's going to be gone a while. And so while the husband's away, she's going to play. Solomon tells his son, watch out for that kind of woman. In that passage, Proverbs 7, it shows how she functions as she's been driven by her lust. May I say this? Lust is an equal opportunity provider, right? Men and women. So Jesus' words in verse 28 tell us uh, something else as well here is that it requires obedience to the seventh commandment in both body and mind. A Puritan proverb captures this truth. It says this, man's law binds the hands only. God's law binds the heart. What that means is man's law can only deal with external. God obligates by his law the internal. It is not enough to simply have not committed the physical act, but God requires, no, no, you've got to be right on the inside. See, in this Sermon on the Mount, that's what Jesus is driving at. He's driving at real righteousness. He is helping people to see it's not some superficial thing that you possess, that you look right on the outside, but inside there is Corruption, you've got a sin problem inwardly. That's what he say, says in Matthew 5.20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he expounds that reality in these verses we we're looking at today and last week in Will. So we see the, the, the deed desired. Next thing, the deliverance. How do you get out of this mess? <laughs> you notice something. Jesus' words here are stunning. Verses 29 and 30. The seriousness of this sin. The sin of the heart. Remember, Jesus is talking about uh, inner adultery. The adultery of the heart. And what our Lord does here, he calls for dramatic action to deliver one from the sin. Why does he do that? Because of the words at the bottom of verse 29 and, and verse 30. To be thrown into hell. To be thrown into hell. Eternal punishment awaits the sinner. So the sin must, be not, must not be taken lightly. And Jesus here says in verse 29, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. 
And verse 29, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. And what does he mean by right eye? What our Lord is talking about, the right eye represents one's best vision. The right hand represents one's best skill, strength, dexterity. The loss of the right eye and the right hand could portray the ultimate sacrifice. Get rid of the very best. Whatever you need to do, do it. Some readers of Jesus' words here have taken them literally and mutilated uh, their bodies in their effort to conquer sinful longings. Let me tell you about one man from church history, Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N, Origen is his name. He's a church father, a famous one. He was from Alexander, Alexander um, Egypt. He lived 185 to 254 A.D., of course. He attempted to combat his lust. He did it by rolling naked over sharp briars. When this effort failed, of course, to achieve what he intended, he ultimately did the unthinkably castrated himself. Origen later uh, regretted his actions and concluded that in his youthful zeal, he had misinterpreted Jesus' words. Indeed, he had. Sin is in the heart. Gouging out the right eye, cutting off the right hand will not solve the problem in the heart. Jesus didn't literally mean that. He's speaking hyperbolically. He's speaking exaggerated language to drive home the point of the seriousness of sin. You need to deal with it in a radical way. That's what he means. That word stumble, stumble. Anything that morally or spiritually traps you and causes you to sin should be eliminated quickly and totally. Deal with it now. The stakes are high. Because hell awaits. And how important it is for us to understand this because in our culture and even in church culture, people do not take sin seriously enough. You need divine view on it. That's what Jesus' words are designed to do. Deal with that issue. Deal with sin. You know, this isn't New Testament stuff alone. This is the testimony of the Bible. And we know that is the case. Job. Job understood what he needed to do to prevent himself from having to uh, or succumbing to the sin. Job 31. Job here asserts his integrity. You know, he was suffering and his so-called friends are con- uh, condemned. You know, after Job, the reason you're suffering is because you're sinning. God had already told us, no, no, he's blamed as a right man. No one like him in the East. So he's all right from God's perspective. His suffering wasn't because he had messed up. And Job, in defending himself, says in Job 31, he says, uh, verse 1, look at these words. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What he was saying, and Job was a married man, he had made a covenant or agreement with his eyes. I am not going to look with lust at a virgin. Verse 2. 
So I'm not doing that. He refused to allow himself to be enticed. It says in the verses, verse 9, start there. Um, if my heart has been enticed by a woman or I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, pursuing an adulterous relationship, he says, may my wife grind for another and let others kneel down over her and let others kneel down over her is talking about sexual relations, if he's done that. For that would be a lustful crime. More would be an iniquity punishable by the judges. Since he hasn't done that. Protected himself. From that evil. He understood it. Job was a righteous man. Um, a godly father. Teaches son. Uh, don't be engaged in stuff. This is what you do, son. Watch out for this. It's Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6. Verse 25. So there's going to be the adultery. Let me tell you, there are always people like this. People who uh, do not follow the biblical standard. And they don't care that you do. They want what they want, and they want it now. And this father says to his son, son, don't fall prey to that. Verse 25, do not desire her beauty in your heart. Don't dwell on her seductive charms, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. Don't lust for her. And they sure know how to attract attention to achieve their evil aims well you know that's all, uh, Proverbs 6 uh, God uh, sees man's ways but we're going to move on to Colossians Colossians 3 I want to tell you what scripture further says about this about this Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 and Paul's writing to the church at Colossae, writing to Christians and how Christians are to behave. And this is uh, for all believers. Colossians 3.5. I trust you found that place. He says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Literally, in this first part of verse 5 of Colossians 3, it is put to death the members of your earthly body. Paul is not talking about putting to death the, the members of the earthly body. We understand that you, killing your arm or killing your, your eye or whatever is not going to deal with it. But he, what he is saying, he is talking about this, with the, sin, the sins that are associated with those members. The eye, the arm, the tongue, all of that. The body does what the inner disposition compels it to do. This is how you kill 
put to death the members of your body are deal with the sins. You are under the control of the Holy Spirit. A spirit-controlled body will do what you want it to do. That's how you deal with it. You see, we're not left on our own to try to fight that. We have the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And as he fills us, controls us, permeates us, guess what? The body cannot have its way. You see, you bring the flesh or the desires under the control of a spirit-filled disposition, a spirit-filled mind. A spirit-filled mind is one that's filled with the word of God. And the word of God says, don't do that. Don't cross that line. Do this, not that. And when you are under that control, then you don't do that. And that's how you bring the body in line. You have to be spirit-filled. Spirit filled is the same thing as being dominated by the word of God. We compare the passages in Colossians and in Ephesians. That's what it means. It's not some mystical thing where you look up, oh God, do something. No, 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 no. Just get in the word and let it fill you. Guess what? The Holy Spirit is filling you. And you will then have victory. It's how you kill bodily members. How you put those sins to death. Romans 8 says, by the power of the Spirit. That's how you do it. Romans 8. Then you're victorious. What are the sins you need to put to death? Let's look at them. He, he enumerates them here for us. He lays them out for us. Immorality. That's just simply illicit sex. Pernea is the word in the original, and that word pernea is part of the uh, uh, compound word from which we get the word pornography. So put it to death. How do you do? How do you stop immorality? Be guided by the Holy Spirit. Be filled by him and his truth. And guess what? You put it to death. Impurity is next one in the list that Paul provides here for us. Uh, impurity and the word it refers to that which is unclean. And it's really evil thoughts and intentions of the mind. There we are. That's what Jesus said, right? Evil thoughts and intentions of the mind. Put it to death. Your mind needs to be renewed comes again by the word of God. This word passion here in verse 5, sexual passion set loose in the body. Put that stuff to death. Evil desire. <laughs> we already talked about that, haven't we? It's created in the mind, right? As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, the proverb says. Let me tell you another thing you want to do. It's not in this list, but I think you'll find it applicable. Stay away from pornography. The internet is the greatest purveyor of smut in the history of the world. The internet... It's better than, uh, in terms of facilitating wickedness, better than the old magazine. Because, you know, people go buy a magazine, put it in a, uh, uh, a package so they could, people didn't know what they were walking around with. Because they were ashamed. Well, you can read through the magazine and it's done. You've seen all the pictures. It's like old gum. You chew it, you 
toss it out. But an internet, it doesn't run out. You can keep going and going and going. Stay away from that stuff. Intentionally say, I'm not doing that because I don't want that in my mind. I don't want those images in my mind enabling me to use that to create evil desire. I told you earlier that we live in a soft porn world. They slam that stuff on the television set. Don't sit there and take it. You want to be holy and pure on the inside. Now, what happens here? Note this, these words. Just as the outward act of adultery reflects an already adulterous heart, the outward act of forsaking what is harmful reflects a heart that hungers and thirsts after righteousness. That's how you know the difference. The unconverted heart is not at all interested in pursuing righteousness. The converted heart can fail. But the converted heart says, I don't want that. I want righteousness. Not only in my outside conduct, but in my inner man. Forsaking evil. Pursuing righteousness. That's a heart that hungers and thirsts. After righteousness. Now, let me tell you what Jesus is doing. You know why Jesus put it like this? He wanted to show us that if you think you can get into heaven with your own righteousness, you got another thing coming, right? You can't. You can't be perfectly righteous. You know that, don't you? You have to come to him. That's what these people did in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They said, God, I don't have the righteousness. I can't measure up to your standard. I fail. I'm a sinner. I'm wretched. I'm bankrupt before you. I have nothing to offer you. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, I know. You're bankrupt. But I have the riches of forgiveness and grace that I'll bestow on you if you repent and come to me. And that's what he does for sinners. And that's a wonderful fact, is it not? A wonderful fact that he saves sinners. And if you're saved this morning, you know that for a fact, don't you? Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the word of God this morning. Thank you for its truth. It penetrates to the deepest recesses of our mind, exposes us, uh, what's in our hearts. You, you, as it were, fillet us and show us the evil that's within. We thank you for the grace that you grant to us who will turn from it and trust you to forgive and renew and change. We thank you for the salvation you granted to us. The salvation is ours forever. Hell is not in our future because our desire is thirsting and hungering after righteousness. We pursue that and we're growing. We thank you for it. We pray for those in this place who are not where we are as believers. You bring them to yourself. Grant them the same grace that you granted to us for their eternal well-being. 
and for their joy and for the praise of your own glory in saving them. We pray these things now in the name of Christ. Amen.